We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues and hosts, incredible guests, listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Uh, in the black church, we say hallelujah. Okay. They actually like pop the tambourine. Did I ever tell you, Jay, that I grew up playing the drums in church? Did I tell you that? No, Have you ever I don't think that? you've ever told me that. Okay, so I'm going to give you a story real quick. Um, so when I learned how to play the drums in church, I must have been maybe around 12, 12 or 13. Had never touched a pair of drumsticks in my life. Um, our main drummer in the church was uh, an Army veteran. I think Kevin was still in the army. He may have just gotten out of the army, but his name was Kevin Three. Threat Three. Uh, Kevin was incredible on the drum. So I would sit on the front row. My mom sang in the choir. Uh, I would sit on the front row and I was like, I got to know how to do this. I got to learn how to do this. And so the first time I hopped on the drums, I'll never forget Miss Clavon. She was like, get that boy off the drum. <laughs> get that boy off the drums. He cannot keep a beat. He's messing up the entire tempo. Get him off the drums. But it only took a little bit of time and practice and I got it. And like, I was a pretty wicked drummer in church like pretty good pretty Are you still a wicked drummer not as wicked but i can keep a beat now that i can do but i can't do all of the things that i used to be able to do roll around and hey, i can't do all of that stuff are you a spiritual person religious person um I, yeah that's a great question you and i both grew up in the church i grew up in the very evangelical pentecostal church um so I have conflicted feelings, but I would say I'm I'm more spiritual than I am religious. Um, I think God is real and he meets us or she or they meet us where we are. Doesn't come in, in Christianity or Buddhism or whatever it is that you need. Um, you know, that's where we find our our faith and uh, our spirituality. Uh, what about you? Uh, you we yeah, you don't uh, mention uh, it very often. It's more of like my yeah, yeah, yeah. trauma. Hold, hold, yeah, I know. Hold, hold on for a second. You know, this is see right now you just fell in that 53% of white women thing. You actually said conflicted, but then you said I believe God is real and all of that. And so, you know, most people, I'm just being funny, which I'm teasing you right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really hard would, not to be that white woman. You know, I know most people would they would lean on the, the backside of the conversation. Well, she amplified God and all that, but I'm zoning in on the word conflicted. Back up a little bit. Why is it a conflicted relationship for you? And then I will answer the question. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how someone that I am supposed to love and is all powerful and created um, this entire universe um, will happily condemn 99% of us to a fiery hellish eternity um, and only save this 1% of us. That that just, that's not a God that I'm into. Um, that's not a, a God. I think that's a God that's been created by men of power who want to retain power. Um, and, and that the idea of a God has been ruined by the practice of religion. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I am a, um, 
I kind of get it confused sometimes, but I'm a very spiritual person. Uh, my favorite pastor is Tolan Morgan. He's out of uh, the Georgia area. There's a sermon that he's done. It's on YouTube. It's titled Touch Me Again. Uh, I have probably watched that sermon no less than 50, 60 times. Um, and one little secret, this is a little secret that I've probably never said publicly. What I have shared with you, Jay, is that I normally am using life events and I'll write them down on little orange and yellow sticky notes. And I had a wall in my office that I would put them on or I would place them in a book. And it could just be a random thought, a random event in life. And I'll just scribble it down and, and then I drop it in, in this, this place. And so I use that to help me form how I am going to move through whatever my keynote presentation is for that year. But before I speak, two, three days before I speak, there are two things that I always do. I listen to Cornell West and I listen to some of my favorite pastors. And it keeps me grounded so that when my energy is so connected to humanity, that I am finding the right words and operating in a space where I can deliver where people are receiving even that truth and that tough transparency that I'm giving them. So I'm a very spiritual person. I'm not a hit you over the head with the Bible person. I'm not the guy who knows how to quote all of the Bible verses, nor do I want to be that guy. That's not who I'm trying to be, but I do believe in a much higher power. But because of that belief, I am not a person who feels like my belief should be the one that everyone else succumbs to or adopts, if you will. How, how do you how, how do you handle that, you know, as it relates to, um, you know, our country acknowledging and being accepting of other people's beliefs? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we are seeing this play out in real time again, you know something I don't say out very out loud very often. I am, grew up in the church. I am for myself a pro-life decision maker. I would not terminate a pregnancy unless it was to save my life or, you know, the the extreme things that we hear happen. And that's my personal choice. Um, but I would never inflict upon another human being my requirements. And I think that's the thing that we see with forced birth believers is that we are requiring people who are not Christians to, you know, legally accept that same belief system and that standard and impact that on our lives. And I think that's the the really kind of scary part about the the overturning of Roe is is sort of that first drum beat, maybe not the first, it's probably in a series of drum beats that starts to move us more towards a theocracy and further away from a democracy. Um, you know, you start to hear the word republic used a lot now by um, very right-wing people who are saying, hey, you know what, just some of the people need to vote, not all of the people need to vote. And sort of that that removal of rights, I think, is based on religious belief is is pretty scary, um, pretty profound. And, and so, you know, I, I think you believe what you believe in. Government should take care of, of the all of the people, not just some of the people. Take care of all the people and not just some of the people. I, 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 we should say that often, take care of all the people 
and not just some of the people. When you say that, you mean in as many ways as possible, not in a limited perspective, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So health, education, education. housing, occupation, like we we have as a government a responsibility to make sure that we are taking care of our people, correct? Yeah. I mean, the government yeah. exists to protect our sovereignty and to create stability within the nation. And when we ignore with our policies and our belief structure, um, you know, three quarters of, of a country that's changing rapidly, we're setting ourselves up for failure. If we don't, you know, we are about to drop out of the top 50 countries in healthcare and our um, lifespan is going down in America, our education is in crisis. These are things that we have to do if we want to continue to be a great nation. Um, and if we don't take care of all of the people in the most broad way possible, right, they will never be perfect. But if we don't allow access, if we don't provide for the basic liberties of, of Americans, we're going to fall. Um, and I think that's really where this, this sort of um, level of, of right-wing Christianity is taking us. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked those two questions to set up uh, what I believe is going to be a compelling and informing, informing conversation with our guests today. And I asked those questions also because there are those, and I'm going to read this because I don't want to mess it up, but there are some that frame the U.S. as a Christian country whose politics and institutions should be guided by Christian principles. In other words, they want the government to promote a specific cultural template as the official culture of the country. And our guest has plenty to say about that. So let's get him set up during the break to have a great conversation. We'll be right back. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We out. All right. So welcome back. Um, I am excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Andrew Whitehead, who is an associate professor of sociology and co-director of the Association of Religious Data Archives, the world's largest online religion data archive at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture at my alma mater, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Whew. His research focuses on how religion both shapes and is shaped by contemporary American culture. He is the lead author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, which won the 2021 Distinguished Book Award from the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. What a bio. Dr. Whitehead, welcome to Crazy and the King. Oh, thank you. It's, it's really good to be with you both. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Whitehead, now let me ask you this. You know, we're going to get the... Uh, the formalities out the way. Do we call you Dr. Whitehead? Are you okay with us calling you Andrew? Is Andrew's there another great. nickname? Because I no, mean, yeah. I looked high <laughs> and low. I searched. Here's what's funny. I actually searched for Dr. Andrew Whitehead nickname. Couldn't oh. find anything. 
That's hilarious. Couldn't find anything. So I said, at least we're going to ask them in the beginning, you know, how do we refer to you? And we certainly want to give you all of the deference that you have uh, earned uh, and are so deserved. Thank you for joining us for real. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Andrew is is wonderful, but yeah, thank you. That's Beautiful what thing. Is. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think about anthropo- anthropologists and, you know, they have long known that, you know, public displays really are common for helping us to craft identities. Uh, mm-hmm. The U.S. is, you know, is very evident with their holiday parties, with our thematic parades, with our celebratory events and different things that we do throughout the entire year. Tell us, in your opinion, you know, what is Christian nationalism and is it a problem with people expressing that the same way that they express Mm. some of these other noted marked events? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, so Christian nationalism, as we define it in our work um, and in the book, um, we highlight it as a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates for a fusion of a particular expression of Christianity. So you can put a little asterisk by Christianity um, with American civic life. So it combines a number of different elements. Um, The first element is a strong sense of moral traditionalism. Um, based on creating and then sustaining social hierarchies. And a lot of times these revolve around gender and sexuality. Um, The second element is a comfort with authoritarian social control. So the world is a chaotic place. um, And at times society needs strong rulers, um, generally men, right, to take control and either under the threat of violence or to enact violence, um, maintain order. And then the final element is a desire for strict ethno-racial boundaries around national belonging, civic participation, um, basically who is a true American. Um, And so a Christian nation, in quotes, um, according to Christian nationalism, is generally understood to be one where white natural-born citizens are held up as the ideal. Um, with everyone else coming after. It isn't as though other groups can't live and and operate and and participate in a sense, but those with the the privileged access to political power, social belonging, all of those things is a very particular group of people. So um, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it really is a white Christian nationalism. It it upholds and supports um, whiteness where, um, again, as our social hierarchy is structured, where white Americans um, have the most access or at least unquestioned access to to the social sphere and political power. Um, Now, one thing that you said that I want to come back to is um, identity right? And the power of narrative and tradition and ritual and what we do and how we do it to define who we are. And that's what white Christian nationalism is really about is, is identifying this is who we are. This is what we're all about. This is where we should go. And this is how we should get there as a nation. So cultural frameworks like Christian nationalism, you can understand them really as the scaffolding around which human interaction in society's form. So they tell us stories about, again, who we are and where we should go and how we should get there. And the symbols and narratives and traditions um, that dramatize those values that we should hold dear, um, a lot of times we don't even notice them. Um, And 
to the extent that we don't, that's when they're most powerful, right? And so in this country, this unspoken assumption of, um, you know, this is what we should be and how we should look, um, white Christian nationalism plays a very strong role, we find over and over in um, organizing Americans' views on, on what should be and how we should get there. So I am reminded, you know, as I make a quick note in our show notes, I'm reminded right now of a statement by Lee Atwater in what I believe to be the early 70s. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a statistician by political science. Oh, no, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you, you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out and yeah, now y'all aren't quoting me. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your back So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things. You're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew. You know. So I, any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. And basically what Lee Atwater said, you know, back in that statement, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, um, but you can't say certain things explicitly. And what I just heard you say was, you know, this nationalism, while they won't say that it's for white men and or white people, mm-hmm. it is cloaked in the Second Amendment. It is cloaked in words like patriotism. It's cloaked in you know, subversive, if you will, or softer language, softer Mm -hmm. description, Mm -hmm. softer illustration, um, the dulcet tones of how we describe uh, what it is. And to me, that's a bit dangerous, nefarious. Am I I being hyperbolic? No, no, you're not. And and I think this is the really interesting part, too, of our research. So um, in the book and in other research we do, um, you know, I'm a sociologist and a lot of my work focuses on looking at large nationally representative surveys of the American public. And so when we measure Christian nationalism among uh, Americans, what we do is we ask a handful of questions like um, how strongly they agree or strongly disagree on a, on a scale Um, with questions like the federal government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation or should advocate Christian values or um, the United States um, plays a special role in in God's plan for the world. And in all of these questions, not one of them do we mention race, right? It's all about how they think Christianity or God or religion should be a part of our public sphere. But what we find over and over when we combine those questions together and create our Christian nationalism scale, if people are on the upper end of that Christian nationalism scale and we ask them questions about race in the United States, like how strongly they 
agree uh, that interracial marriage should be legal, we find that those on the upper end are much more likely to oppose interracial marriage um, than those at the lower end of the Christian nationalism scale. When we talk about transracial adoption, those at the upper end of the Christian nationalism scale are more likely to oppose adopting outside your race than those at the lower end of the scale. When we talk about um, the use of deadly police force um, and, and um, you know, whether uh, black Americans that die at the hands of police, um, are they, they dying because they're more violent? Those at the upper end of Christian nationalism scale say that the reason that black Americans die at the hands of police more often is because they're more violent. So more racist understanding of um, police violence uh, in the black community. Um, when we talk about um, structural inequality or why um, wealth is unequally distributed in the U.S., those at the upper end of the Christian nationalism scale are more likely to say it's because of individual shortcomings um, among racial minorities rather than the effects of slavery, Jim Crow, or historic um, uh, structural inequality. So those are just a couple, but across all these different studies, what we find over and over is that um, for Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, especially for white Americans, um, we're not asking them about race when we talk about Christian nationalism, but it is inextricably tied to race. And so that's where we, you know, identify it as a white Christian nationalism, that it really essentially cloaks these racialized understandings of, of American society in religious rhetoric. Um, and as you said, I think really well, is that um, they can talk about, well, we want it to be a Christian nation. But with it comes all that cultural baggage, right, of racial inequality and racialized views. Um, and so as we look through our history, um, the rhetoric used by the KKK um, is the same, where they want to protect a Judeo-Christian culture, right? And they had very explicit views. Now, not every American who embraces Christian nationalism is a white nationalist, um, but that rhetoric is the same. And so a broad acceptance of Christian nationalism creates fertile ground where extremism, like the KKK or white nationalism, can take root and flourish. And so, yeah, we have to be really careful when we talk about trying to institutionalize a particular expression of Christianity with American civic life, because it comes with a lot of these other racialized understandings for, for white Americans. Wow, that was, um, that was awesome. I, I, I guess, I, you know, Again, as someone who sort of grew up, not sort of, definitely grew up in the church and grew up with a a belief that, you know, this should be a Christian nation, all the things that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I read an article that you wrote in Time last year that 30 million Americans strongly, strongly embraced Christian nationalism. How do we... Um, who are outside the church kind of, or as, as, you know, scientists, academics, how do we distinguish Christian nationalism from, from Christianity itself? Um, because I think it's important that we, we recognize and say, not all Christians are Christian nationalists, that that's not a blanket statement that anyone should be using. And I think it's easy to get in that habit. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point and great question. So, yeah, when, when we do our work, I think it's really helpful to talk in terms of Christian nationalism, like the ideology, and, and try not to label anybody a Christian nationalist. Because a lot of times when we label, right, it just shuts down 
either they're saying, well, yes, I am, and I'm not going to listen to you, or they don't know what that term is. And so I think talking about the ideology is key, because then we can talk about ideas. And and I think, too, we can talk then about um, implications of those ideas, right? So um, we can look at the evidence and say, hey, when we strongly embrace this understanding of Christian nationalism, um, those folks are more likely to ignore racial inequality or are more likely to um, ignore, you know, gender equality and, and all these things that for most folks, you know, they might be supportive of generally. And so when we talk about Christian nationalism, I think there's kind of two sides to the same coin um, um, regarding your question. So Christian nationalism as ideology, it is um, in, in some cases rampant within white Christianity. Right. So in the white evangelical church or even white mainline or white Catholicism, there are a lot of Americans in those religious communities that do embrace Christian nationalism to some extent. But as you point out, not all. Right. And so it is somewhat separate. But Christian nationalism in the U.S. won't it wouldn't exist without the white um, church. Right. Generally. And so they are just strongly intertwined. Um, but we have groups, so like 20% of white evangelicals um, oppose Christian nationalism um, and larger numbers within my, white mainline or white Catholic churches. But by and large, um, you know, most of those folks do embrace it. So when we're talking about Christianity, I think a really important point is that the Christianity of Christian nationalism, um, we, we shouldn't ever say that, oh, they're not real Christians. They are right? It's that this expression of Christianity, it's a particular type, brings with it all these other cultural beliefs um, and really cultural baggage um, that has been intertwined with it. But there are other expressions of Christianity that oppose that. So one is the black church, historic black church in the U.S., right? Those expressions of Christianity, they might even agree that um, the U.S. should be a Christian nation, but in their terms, they're looking at it as though, hey, if we were truly Christian, we would treat everybody equally, right? We would have equal rights for all people. That's a very different expression of Christianity than the you know Christianity of Christian nationalism, which wants to kind of uphold racial hierarchies and, and differences in, and access to power. Um, and so I think, you know, broadening our view of, of the different expressions of Christianity is really key. Because I think a lot of times, in, and I'm sure you both have seen this in the media, when people talk about religious Americans or Christianity, they're usually just speaking to white religiously and politically conservative folks. And that's the Christianity that we see over and over. But there are a lot of different expressions of Christianity. Um, and so recognizing, you know, the religious left or the historic black church, these are other expressions. And I think that's part of the way that we find, we can find our way out of this mess in some sense is, yeah, is that there are more expressions um, that lay aside the dangerous aspects of white Christian nationalism. You know, speaking of finding our way out of this mess, I do love your insertion around ideology over labels, uh, mm -hmm. ideology over labels. And to that end of finding our way out of this mess, uh, Julie mentioned, um, geez, what did you mention earlier in the show, Julie? It's going to come to me in a moment. But you mentioned, Andrew, number of data points and studies and surveys that you all have done mm -hmm. and what you found versus the, 
the one end of the spectrum versus the other end, whether it be around racism, transnational adoption of babies. You, you found a number of different examples mm-hmm. uh, that that separate them, that clearly mark them in a particular camp. Right. Are, are there some other examples that are currently happening right now through Christian nationalism mm-hmm. that are having an impact on the trajectory of how we are as a country, society, world, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Great question. And, and truly, there are. So right now, we're living through a moment um, when we look back just a year and a half ago in January 6th and in the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, in response to, um, you know, the, the big lie, right, that the election was, was stolen, even though um, we had a fair and free election. So when we look at um, the capital insurrection, we're finding that Americans who embrace Christian nationalism, um, as we move further away from January 6th, are becoming more supportive of the insurrectionists and the use of possibly the use of political violence um, if the outcome right isn't in their favor. And so a redefining of what happened January 6th is ongoing um, among those Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism. And so that's really dangerous, right? As we look back, you know, at the Civil War, even the lost cause, right, where there was this redefinition of what it was all about, that is still influential today. And so we see that taking place. Um, another aspect is threats to um, democracy and and whether all Americans ha- should have access to the vote, right? Because ha- having access to the vote, being able to give voice to to where you want to see your state, community, the country go is is obviously fundamental to democracy. And we find over and over Americans who strongly embrace Christian nationalism, who in the book we call ambassadors, they're at the very upper end of the scale. Um, they're more likely um, to deny that voter suppression is a problem. Um, they're more likely to believe that the U.S. makes it too easy to vote. Um, they're more likely to believe that voter fraud is rampant, even though there's no evidence of that. Um, they're more likely to support laws that would disenfranchise um, Americans who might have committed certain crimes and saying they should never be able to vote again. And so um, there are real threats to uh, this understanding of what democracy is and and who should be able to participate in it. Um, and again, those are, I think, pushing folks um, to say that, you know, only a particular type of American should be able to fully participate. And again, that comes down to white, natural born, religiously and politically conservative uh, Christians. Um, so again, enshrining this very particular expression of Christianity as what should be kind of um, highlighting where we are as a nation and what we're all about. So I think one thing that you said kind of caught me, right? So we often, I think, at least I'll speak for myself, when I think of Christian nationalism, I think Mm -hmm. of a violent movement. And I think we've seen that come out and play and be more predominant over the last five to six years, at least in in my lifetime. But I have to assume that there are also, I'm going to use the word passive, even though I don't know if that's the right word, passive Christian nationalists who um, really empower and reinforce the the more violent tendencies of Christian nationalism and allow it to continue to exist. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to um, 
you know, kind of how someone who is nonviolent, but is quietly supportive, um, how they have that kind of impact on our democracy and the empowerment of, of more um, violent, extreme, you know, nationalists. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think is so important too to this conversation is that, you know, as we look in our book, again, Americans are spread all across this scale, right? With some strongly rejecting Christian nationalism, some resisting it. Then we have this group that um, we call accommodators. So they're right above the mean, but they aren't our ambassadors that are the very upper end of the scale. But these accommodators are folks, when we interviewed them and, and we share kind of their words in the book, you know, think Christianity is obviously a good influence in American society, should play a role. Um, they wouldn't go so far as to say other religious groups um, shouldn't be able to, you know, participate or um, have influence, but generally they see Christianity as a positive force. Um, but I think, you know, what, what you're highlighting is so important because, um, you know, Jamar Tisby and, and his work, um, he wrote the, a really great book, The Color of Compromise, looking at the historical white church and how it played a role in perpetuating racism, right, throughout its whole, throughout the history of the U.S. He talks about it in terms of, um, you know, you could be standing on a moving walkway at the airport and you might be standing still, but it's still carrying you somewhere, right? You may not actively be walking forward, but you're still moving with it. And in the same way, when we look at, in this particular example, let's say um, racism in the U.S., um, you know, you could be embracing Christian nationalism as an accommodator, so not strongly, but you're not speaking out against those more violent or um, racialized elements. Um, and so our country is a moving walkway. It's pushing us this way. So you may not actively be walking that way, but you're still being carried along. It's only when we turn around and actually start trying to walk against the moving walkway that we're going to make any progress. And so for those folks that, you know, quietly embrace Christian nationalism or don't want to speak out, um, I think that's what creates this kind of fertile ground where the extremism can take root. I think Americans will have to try and turn around on that walkway, as, as um, Jamar Tisby talks about, and try to move the other way, which means recognizing Christian nationalism, um, speaking out against it, saying that, no, we don't have to enshrine this particular expression of Christianity, um, but that we should welcome Americans of all faiths or no faith to the table, and they should all have a voice. They should all be a part of it. Um, we don't have to codify, again, this particular understanding of Christianity. Um, and so it's only when we do that specifically, right, and on purpose, kind of um, thinking in terms of your question, that we're able to then, you know, essentially point out that this group on the far end that, that can resort to violence or maybe wants to um, is not who we are. But if we quietly just accept it, then those more violent or extremist elements can still um, exist and, and find, yeah, opportunities to, to do the work that they want to do in our culture. You know, I'm actually processing. Uh, Jay, I want you to stay on frequency. I want you to, you know, push the next question, you know, because I'm, I'm processing, you, you know, what Dr. Whitehead just said. and. You know, part of the challenge that I um, and when I use the word challenge, let me frame it in the sense of I am forcing myself. I am being sort of devil's advocate, if you will, uh, because that's a familiar phrase. I, I am listening to what you are saying and I'm asking myself, 
but, but there would be some who would say there's nothing wrong with me being that passive um, Christian nationalist. There, there's nothing wrong with that. There are some that would say, but I don't have to be extremely vocal and animated around being an anti-racist, that mm -hmm. it's okay for us to push back uh, against mm -hmm. critical race theory and uh, having cartoons that have LGBTQ parents and mm -hmm. um, our removing certain books uh, around the Holocaust from reading lists. It is okay for us to be that. And I'm not a bad person. We're not bad people. Right. I am processing what you are saying um, because you hit on so much, you know, from an institutional standpoint, structural standpoint, systemic standpoint, and the whole escalator or um, what do you call that thing at the airport example by Jamar Tisby? Compelling. Yeah. And so I guess I, I do want J Julie to ask a question, but. I'm going to, in my pushing back and challenge, mm -hmm. how much do you believe what you just said? Right. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one thing that I want to make clear too, is that um, we're all on a journey, right? And so when we look at this evidence, so I've been studying this for 15 years, but I have my own personal journey with this too. So having grown up in a white evangelical church tradition um, where, yeah, race wasn't talked about. Right. It just wasn't a part of it. And, and any sort of talk about, you know, racial justice, that's politics. That isn't anything to do with the gospel or, you know, the kingdom of God or anything like that. And so I've been on a journey for a while. Right. And so, too, there's an aspect of for, for most folks, I don't want it to come across as like you've got to understand this you know, after one podcast and you got to be on board, but you need to explore. And so I think that's the hope is an invitation to say, well, yeah, I hear this talk of a Christian nation or you hear politicians use this rhetoric. What are they saying? What, what are they actually going to when they paint the other side of the aisle as evil and against God's will? What does that mean for democracy, right? Um, where we're supposed to share power and compromise to find a way forward for, for everyone to flourish. Um, and so I think that's the hope is for me, when I start to see what Christian nationalism, you know, saying that the government should advocate Christian values, should uh, declare the U.S. a Christian nation. When I see what those beliefs are associated with regarding race, um, gender, violence, um, you know, fear or disdain towards immigrants and refugees, even Christian refugees, um, that's where I start to say, okay, there's something going on here because that doesn't look like <laughs> the gospel where, you know, all should be welcome and be able to flourish. Um, you know, so these other expressions of Christianity that, um, you know, want to see, to see folks be able to, to live and, and flourish and work um, together. And so I think that's a big part of it. So, yeah, I, as some would, you know, maybe say, well, I, I think these things, but I, you know, am not racist or, or these other things. Um, that's not the, the message that I hope they take away from this, but just understanding that while we may not personally be, um, we may, you know, I didn't personally create this, um, society where, 
racial minorities don't have the same opportunities as white Americans, but I still benefit from it. And so learning more about that and how to try to hear the voices of those who have had very different express or experiences as mine, learn how I can support them, um, how I can come alongside or to follow their lead. Um, those are things that I want to be able to do. And I think in a pluralistic democratic society um, where all should, should have a say, we have to be committed to that. And so it's a journey and a process. And that's what I would hope, hope folks would, would see is that you have time. You don't have to have anything decided or figured out today. But uh, it is important because people are being harmed um, and losing their lives or their livelihoods um, because of this. And so we, it's, it is important for us to figure it out, especially um, if we want to see our democracy um, continue on, which in some ways it is under attack. So, um, yeah, hopefully that kind of gets at your, your question and, and what we're thinking about. Yeah, I, I think it absolutely does. And I think you hit on a, a couple of different things. You know, what are the forces at play right now in, in our society, which make us, I don't want to say uniquely, but make us vulnerable to the allure of mm. a, a Christian nationalism ideology? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, a couple of things. Um, so Christian nationalism as an ideology is so powerful because uh, again, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier in our conversation is that um, it really is a powerful tool to tell us who we are, right? To give us an identity, a collective identity. In any group, the, the quickest way to know who we are is to know who we're not, right? To say, well, we're not that. And so in times of social change and upheaval, which we're living through, right? Uh, racial demographics, um, are changing in our country over the past decades. Religious demographics have been changing for decades. So it is a different looking country than it was 50, 60 years ago. And so for some Americans, they look at that and, and they might fear that or fear have a sense of threat. And so in times of social upheaval or change, cultural frameworks like Christian nationalism are kind of readily available for some groups to say, well, we should try to um, stop this change. We need to go back. We need to be who we were, right? So that people can feel comfortable, not have to deal with that change. And so it isn't as though we should ignore the fact that um, change is happening around us, but I think we have to be really wary of people or groups that want to say, um, hey, this change needs to be opposed no matter what, and we need to ensure that we maintain access to power, and it is a battle of good and evil. All these terms, right, they get wrapped up in Christian nationalist rhetoric. Um, we have to be careful of that because, again, um, that's where those that are on the margins get harmed um, because they're denied access. And so, yeah, it isn't as though change or, um, it you know, isn't scary or can can create upheaval. Um, but when we look towards ideologies like Christian nationalism that um, are kind of hinging on keeping others out of power without a say in society, that's where the danger comes. And so um, that's where we have to kind of, yeah, be aware and, and listen to those things. You actually reinforced one of the questions that I was going to ask as we wrap up this segment, you know, what was one of the takeaways that you wanted to make sure 
listeners keyed in on. And, and I want to reiterate that you said uh, about three, four minutes ago that we don't expect you to have it all buttoned up after one podcast. And, and when you say one podcast, it could be this one with Julie and I here, Crazy and the King. It could be a person who has listened to 10 different podcasts, a number of episodes. More importantly, you said a journey that we are all on together. I, I absolutely love that you frame it that way, that it's not a destination, that it is absolutely a journey. My final question for you, Andrew, is this. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? that through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. And it may be a bit invasive, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Choose not to answer it. Totally your choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you've earned your right. You totally your choice. But when you think about the 15, you know, close to 20 years of work that you've done in this space, when you think about your matriculation through being a teen, where'd you grow up, by the way? Northern Indiana, actually. Okay. Near the North, Michigan border. Yeah. North, and is that where uh, KKK country is? Is it close to KKK country? Yeah, Indiana has a history of that. Yeah, there's some counties around Indianapolis, but yeah, northern Indiana, um, a neighboring county, I think did have, yeah, it was quite a stronghold. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, got it. So 15 years, body of work, uh, your matriculation through and up into adulthood, something that you've never said publicly before that you have uncovered. When you think about all of that, something that you've never said publicly hmm. before? That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I would probably need more time to think about that. Well, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say, so this is, I'm not trying to dodge, but in some ways you could, you could interpret it that way. But so I'm working on my next book, which is written to Christians about Christian nationalism. And so it'll, it'll come out next August. Um, but it is, it's not academic and it's sharing a bit of my story. Um, and then looking at the research on Christian nationalism and then, you know, making a case for Americans, Christians to move towards expressions of Christianity that, um, oppose Christian nationalism and are focused on the flourishing of, of all folks, whether they're Christian or not, or even religious or not, that. Christians should be a part of the work of flourishing in society. But that doesn't mean we have to enshrine, again, this particular expression of Christianity. So in that book, I do share some of my own personal stories as growing up in you know, the white Christian church and in a very white part of the U.S., conservative, politically, religiously part of the U.S., um, 
you know, those different moments that kind of poked holes in, in the veil that had me starting ask questions, right? So like when we talk about um, wanting to go back, um, well, you know, going back to the good old days, were those days good for everybody? So as a white male, I can go all the way back <laughs> in the history of the US, any decade you want, and I'm going to be fine, right? But you don't have to go too far back to where, um, you know, African-American brothers and sisters couldn't vote. Um, don't have to go too much farther back than uh, my female uh, sisters can't vote. Um, don't have to go too far back to where um, we see, right, slavery and, and Jim Crow and, and all these things to where if I grew up in a different racial socioeconomic group, um, if I was born in that group, I would have had a very different experience. And so growing up and starting to ask those questions and thinking about, well, if we were always a Christian country, um, why did we treat <laughs> indigenous uh, Americans the way that we did? Um, why did we enslave um, and, and steal people from their country and bring them here and enslave them? Why did we um, you know, keep women from full access to um, power and politics um, and, our, and the social um, culture. Um, so these are questions I think that I started to ask. And, and so that's something that I haven't, I haven't ever really shared my personal journey that I will obviously next time, but I'm doing that a little bit here too, that that was a part of me trying to come to terms with, well, what is Christianity? What does it mean to me? Um, and what should it mean for us as, you know, people of faith? Um, are we living out the gospel? What is the gospel of Jesus? What does that look like? Um, those are the things I had to wrestle with and it's been a part of my journey. And so, yeah, just wanting to invite other people, whether they're Christian or not, or they know Christians or not in the faith anymore or of no faith at all. Um, we have to find a way to live and work together. Um, and so that's what I want to be a part of is, um, ensuring the flourishing of of all my neighbors, not just the neighbors that look like me um, or believe like me. So I don't know. Hopefully that gets to your yeah. question. So I have a few people I'm going to send that book to, but also look forward looking forward to reading it myself. Please let us know um, when it gets published next year. We'd love to have you back yeah. on the show. We're already cool. planning a couple other times to have you on the show. So you may become a regular around here. Um, we're going to hop to um, our last ad break and jump in for her voice segment where Dr. Whitehead is going to uh, join us as well. We'd never admit it, but deep down, we all get at least some pleasure from bad things happening to somebody we don't like. History's full of stories about bitter enemies being mutually horrible. Usually nothing good comes of it. But sometimes, sometimes, you get soul singers James Brown and Joe Tex, or 17th century nun Sor Juana, and the entire Catholic Church duking it out and dramatically changing our world. On Beef with Bridget Todd, we tell the stories of those petty feuds behind some of the greatest art, innovation, and global events. Listen to Beef wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, an incredible conversation. This is where we do her voice, where we amplify women that are making moves, women that are making moves. First up this week is Tamara Van Dyken. She actually drafted worship wars, gospel hymns, and cultural engagement in American evangelicalism. 
uh, for the period of 1890 to 1940. Put some context around that. Her article argues that gospel hymnody, I'm sorry, gospel hymnody was integral to the construction of modern evangelicalism through an analysis of the debate over worship, music, and three denominations, the Methodist Episcopal Church, the Christian Reformed Church, and the Reformed Church in America during that period, she reveals how worship music was essential to the negotiation between churchly tradition and practical faith, between institutional authority and popular choice that characterized the 20th century liberal conservative divide. That was a mouthful. Uh, next, we have Kristen Cobes Dumez, who is a New York Times bestselling author and professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. You can follow her at KKDUMEZ on Twitter. And speaking of following individuals on Twitter, uh, Dr. Andrew Whitehead is also on Twitter. He's at Drew. He took the A off. So he's at Andrew Whitehead on Twitter. Now, here's why I am smiling, because as we were preparing for the show, in this segment, we amplify women. And I know at the top of the show, I made a joke around doing a Google search uh, in reference to Andrew, Dr. Whitehead, and a nickname. But on a serious note, I did a Google search looking for women that had some relationship to religious um, and cultural implications and impact and all. I just used a variety of different phrases and I struggled Mm -hmm. to find the two women that I came up with. So Dr. Whitehead, before you give us the third person in her voice, is it because there is an absence of women in this space? Or am I just not putting the right terminology in Google? You know, those are that's a great question. We'll have to get an expert on, you know, the the Google algorithms and stuff, because I do think that's a part of it. But yeah, there's no absence of women. Honestly, you said come up with one. But, you know, in my journey or even in my next book, um, there are a lot of women in their writings that have really been influential. So I might list a couple names. I'll highlight the first one here, Um, Ruth Bronstein. So she's a fellow sociologist. Um, She's an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. She wrote a great book called Prophets and Patriots, Faith and Democracy Across uh, the Political Divide. Um, And then she's had some great work looking at the religious right, the, the religious left, um, the rise of secularism, you know, trying to understand all these religious movements um, in contemporary U.S. So she's really great. She's on Twitter, too. You can follow her. She leads a democracy lab there at, at uh, UConn. Um, so we're kind of colleagues, and, and her work's been influential, and, and so really want to... Um, you know, boost her. She's, she's great. Um, you know, for the, my next book, which, uh, is titled American idolatry. There are a couple of, of women, um, who wrote books that have been really influential. So one is Sarah Bessie. She's written a number of books. Jesus feminist is one. Another one that I keep coming back to is called out of sorts. And so for folks that maybe grew up Christian who are on a journey and trying to make sense of the Christianity we were handed, 
versus um, maybe you know what we hope to see Christianity look like now. That's a great book. Um, you know, talking about the kingdom of God and what that means. Um, another uh, name is Caitlin Sheese, and I think I have her last name right. She wrote a book called The Liturgy of Politics. And so, again, this is written to Christians, but thinking about how political participation um, really does form us spiritually and how the flourishing of all people um, is a part of our kingdom work as Christians. And so that's a really great one. And then the final one, I could go on, but I'll just stick with these three, um, is Kat, uh, Kat Armas. And she wrote, um, uh, her book is is, called, is on um, women who are have been marginalized throughout uh, scripture. It's called uh, Abuelita Faith. And, um, and so she's looking and, and doing theology um, it's really in, engaging, but, um, you know, through the lens of, you know, for her as a religious minority, or I mean, a racial minority in the U.S. and um, her, um, you know, her grandfather came from Cuba, her grandma and grandfather came from Cuba and just their whole experience. And so looking at Christianity through the lens of, um, you know, uh, racial minorities and those who have been marginalized. And so that's really powerful. Um, for me as a white man, right? I've never been marginalized um, in Christianity or in America. And so I think listening to those conversations and being formed by them have been really helpful. So yeah, those three, well, four, Ruth Bronstein, Sarah Bessie, Kat Armas, and then Caitlin Sheath. Um, those are the ones that right now are really forming me. And, and as a woman, let me just take a second and say thank you so much for amplifying the voices of the women who work alongside you, who've influenced you, um, who are your peers. Dr. Andrew Whitehead, author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's really good to be with you. Um, thank you for the work you all are doing. Julie and I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe to find your voice, be a better human. Let's create better workplaces, stronger cultures, keeping in mind that the ROI of DNI is greater humanity. For now, Jay and I are ghosts. See ya. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.